time we can dismiss our elementary and middle school age children that would like to head to their class, which begins now. Please open your Bibles with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 can be found on page 826 in the Black Pew Bibles in those seats around you. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 23 to the end of the chapter, all the way through verse 46. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you had information come into your knowledge? You know, you've learned something, you have discovered something, and it's like, I can't now undo that information. Like, I can't act as if that's not true anymore. If you're a Christian, then my guess is you could describe your conversion experience like that, what it means to follow Jesus. That once you have the gospel message of who God is and who Jesus is become clear and, and you really wrestle with it, like how can you live as if you did not just learn that and, and undo that as if it doesn't exist? And I, I want to at least provide that concept of a specific idea about the gospel today and that's the issue throughout our entire service of the authority of Jesus as the foundation of your life. And I want to picture this in terms of just a basic, common, everyday illustration right from the start with um, what our children's ministry workers are more than likely dealing with at some point or another today. And, and that is um, in, in our nursery we have young children. Praise God for the families of our church and the young children. That's great. We love them, and hopefully you do too, and you're excited to want to sign up and serve for the children's ministry. A little plug for my wife there, right? So um, when you do go, for those of you that serve there regularly and for those of you that have not experienced this, but if you've ever been around especially those ages, you're playing with toys, and um, those toys, by the way, belong to this church here that we're renting, First United Methodist Church. But you'll find out very soon that it just takes a few minutes of playing with those toys that they don't belong to First United Methodist Church anymore. They belong to whoever that child is, is holding them or even has them around their general vicinity. You know, so you could have a child be playing with a whole bunch of toys that they now think are theirs. And then they turn this way to play with this doll or toy and then don't realize that they've now exposed themselves to let these other toys they've been playing with to be confiscated. And so then comes in another child that realizes, well, hey, these are all of our toys to share. And they grab one of the toys only to have the child turn around and say what? Mine, right? And they snatch it back, and that's the familiar scene. I want that picture to be in your mind as we read this text of Scripture. The issue that's going down is the people of Israel have decided that the kingdom of God is mine. 
The Pharisees that are going to ask the question about authority are essentially snatching from Jesus, no, this is mine. And Jesus is going to tell them, no, it's mine. That's really the big idea in a nutshell. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. It's his, or as Abraham Kuyper has famously said, as he thinks about the sovereign rule of God, there is not one square inch on this universe that the sovereign Lord does not declare mine. So let's read our text with that image and that idea in your mind. And let's see if this doesn't become one of those good reminders Or even for some of you, the first time that you really wrestle with, it's not yours. It's his. And the implications of undoing that idea, you can't undo that. Once that starts to get in there, it will forever affect everything in your life. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching And said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So, they answered Jesus, oh, we don't know. And he said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I will go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, 
let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. These series of stories, both the stories about Jesus and the stories that Jesus tells, are about authority. By what authority does Jesus do the actions that he just did? So let's work through each of these scenes, and hopefully you'll see in each of them that the idea in all of this section is one major point, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Or if you were to say it another way, and I think this is just as helpful, the God of the Bible is a generous, gracious, loving master Submit to him. This is for your good. First scene, first story, picks up where we left off last week. Jesus is back in the temple. He rode in on a donkey. He did so to proclaim peace. He did so to declare his spot as a king. And he goes into the temple and he turns over tables. And so he declares. He provides a symbolic act of judgment that says that this temple will be destroyed and he is, he's calling the shots for a moment or two and then he goes away, he curses a fig tree and then he comes back. And my guess is that things are back as the way they were the day before. The, the tables and the money changers haven't left. It's not as if Jesus is now in charge of the temple. The leaders of the temple are still there and they're wondering, hey, what was that about? Who do you think you are? And that's the first question here. By what authority do you do this? Jesus, like a classic rabbi, answers his question with a question. And he says, I've got a question for you. And so now look down at verse 29. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? We just read that text earlier in our service. Danielle read it for us from Matthew chapter 3. And it said that the Pharisees were coming. You can see that they were there. They know who John the Baptist was. And they know that in general, the basic assumption of the Jewish people is that this man is a prophet of God. And in that very scene, we saw that Jesus got baptized. John the Baptist was saying, oh no, after me is going to come the true Messiah King, the Son of God. And he baptized Jesus. So this is Jesus being authorized 
by not just John the Baptist, who is a genuine prophet of God, but he is also being authorized by God, the Father himself, as the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So he's curious. He's saying, so, so what are you going to do with John? And this is well spelled out of like them huddling up. Just imagine them saying, hmm, that's a good question. Guys, psst, let's come over. And then they huddle up and they're like, so what are we going to do? Because you realize that if we say that John the Baptist was from heaven, well, then he's going to say, then why didn't you repent? Why didn't you get baptized like Jesus? Why didn't you go along with the message of repentance and follow Jesus the way John the Baptist kept pointing to Jesus? Well, that won't work. We're trying to get rid of Jesus. So if we say he was just another man, like John the Baptist wasn't a prophet, well, then we've got this big problem on our hands because we're now saying something opposite of what everyone else believes. Everyone else believes John the Baptist was a prophet, and if we're saying he's not, that's not going to look good for us. Hey, I got an idea. How about we just come back to Jesus and say, we don't know. So that's what they decide is the best card to play. They come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, we don't know. And how does Jesus play ball with people that are like that? He doesn't. He says, fine. You don't want to talk straight with me? I'm not going to talk straight with you. This is a lesson for us to learn. I know you and I aren't chief priests in the temple of Israel and that more is going on here, but let's pause. Let's learn a lesson from this text. Let's learn from these people as they interact with Jesus. Jesus does not play ball with people that don't want to speak the truth like this. If, if you want to act like, well, I know the truth, I know the thing I should say, I know the thing that I should do, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what others might think. I'm afraid of how this might be perceived by the crowds. Who are those crowds for you? Friends, this is one of the common most often struggles that we have every single day. The fear of men and women. The fear of mom and dad. The fear of our peers. The fear of our coworkers. And in what way are you avoiding the truth? The thing that you know you should say or the thing that you know you should do? Because of your fear. My guess is that there are layers upon layers like an onion that should be unpeeled of our fear of man, and we probably will never get to the core of that stinky onion. At least until Christ's final return and the new kingdom and the new heart and the new body that we have awaiting for us. By far, this should be one of those set, regular, often discussed topics in our discipleship relationships, in small group circles, what are you avoiding saying or doing because of your fear of other men and women? Jesus says, no, that's, that's not how this works. Neither then will I talk to you with a straight, straightforward, clear answer. So what does he do? He does talk to them some more. It's not like he says, well, forget you, stiff arm. He says, I'll talk in parables then. 
which should remind us of Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus said, I don't speak in parables to be clear. I speak in parables so that if you have ears to hear, then you'll hear. And it's obvious that these guys did not get what Jesus was doing until the very end. They're like, oh, wait a second. He's talking about us. If he was talking just straight up, say, hey, by the way, you guys are not legit, authoritative leaders of Israel. You're going to be overthrown, and I'm the real leader. Like, he could have just said that. God sent me from heaven, but that's not what he does. He tells two parables, and both of them are about authority. Parable number one. What do you think, Jesus asked? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, when we read this story, most of you in this room grew up or live in America. And so this story may not be so shocking to you because you don't come from an honor-shame culture and you don't come from a culture that has a higher respect of authority that a Middle Eastern honor-shame culture does. So when you read this, you're like, well, I see that kind of stuff all the time. A dad or a mom says, hey, I want you to do this. And they're like, no. Like, oh, that's everyday life. Come to my house, Pastor Phil. Like, welcome to the nursery or whatever, right? Like, this is common everyday experiences. But this story is shocking. It's shocking from that honor-shame culture. It's shocking from the fact that the son hears this and says, I will not. Just straight to his face. That should be, you're disowned, see a son, get out of the house, don't talk to me like this. And so afterward, the son changes his mind, and he decides that he will do it. And that's son number one. Some have suggested that this first son is probably the younger son, because it would be youngest to oldest in terms of this kind of cultural expectation. And so you got very much, if you think of the prodigal son story, like this younger, defiant brother, the younger son who's rebellious and just says, Dad, give me my inheritance now. Then he goes to the other son, more than likely the older brother. And of course, this older brother is respectful, and he's the people pleaser of the family, and he's the obedient firstborn. And he says, I will go, sir. It's the same word for like Lord or master. What's this story about? Authority. The authority of now an adult, a parent, to a child, to a son. And you've got one that is rebelling and disobeying, and you've got another one that is saying, at least by their words, yes, I will obey. And then, that second son did not go out and do what he did. And so Jesus is now talking to these Pharisees about this issue of authority and says, which of the two did the will of the Father? And the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones that are talking to him about authority, they said, well, the first one. And Jesus said to them, truly, it's the word amen. Truly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And when you saw this, you didn't change your mind. You're the older brother. 
You're the lip service, I'm going to say I believe in God, I'm going to talk a good talk of religious game, but my actual actions show little fruit of righteousness. John the Baptist demanded a baptism of repentance that bears good fruit. And these tax collectors, and then, oh, the fact that he uses prostitutes. He's used tax collectors before. We've talked about tax collectors. They're slimy, and they're always seen as, you know, lower on society because they're they're swindling people out of money all the time. You may not like tax collectors of the IRS, but, like, these are way worse. But then then the prostitutes? Now, maybe that's shocking to you. Maybe we live in such a sexually saturated society that you're like, whoa, okay, what's the big deal? I mean, this, this is Jesus putting it out there as in your face as he could and says, they are coming into the kingdom first. What a lesson this is, again, for us. How much of your Christian life, how much of your life is more lip service versus actual obedience. Do not forget that Jesus says at the end of his most famous teaching, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, many will give lip service to my name, but I will say I never knew you because those who have built their house on a solid rock do the will of the Father. Friends, it is not an oxymoron. It is not in contradiction with these competing ideas. Salvation is a free gift from God. If you would become a Christian, it's not because of your good works, but free gifts, ideas that land in your mind and heart that you can't undo, like the grace of God in the gospel that we're about to see in our last story. When that grace When the authority of God, that idea of like, no, this is all mine and I'm sharing it with you because I'm a generous master. When things like that happen, it changes you. You act differently. You can't undo it. And so you become different people. You become righteous people. And so to demand that we obey God is not works as the basis of our salvation. Rather, it is the fruit of of our salvation, and this is exactly what Jesus is referring to here. And it's fine for us as a church to talk about it in these ways, and therefore even demand it. Demand that if you're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, it should not be that you just said some words one day to God in a prayer, or you got up in front of a church and you said, well, I'm a Christian now and I want to get baptized, and I believe in Jesus. Those are things that we would do, but are there actual actions One of the worst things that is plaguing the Christian church in America is what is lip service Christianity. It is not a Christianity that is flowing with faithful obedience to God out of the changed heart of the good news of what he has done. Has that lesson sunk in? Do you realize that our king demands obedience? What does it mean for him to be the king if we're still the king of our lives? He demands obedience obedience. And so these Pharisees are just starting to learn, as Jesus tells this first parable, that he has authority and he is illustrating to them that you all are entering in, if you enter in at all. Some have suggested that the best way to understand they're going in first, meaning they're replacing your spot. 
because you think you're going in first. And it'll be prostitutes and tax collectors that are going to be swapped out for your spot because you never did the work of the Father. Story number two that Jesus tells. The parable of the tenants. This story, by the way, sums up the entire Bible. If that sounds like a bold claim, I think it is well backed up when you think about all that's going on here. This is the Bible in miniature story form. Jesus tells a story about a master of a house who plants a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. First, you have a master who generously and wealthily provides for his people. All these descriptions are showing you that this vineyard is not like every other vineyard. This guy has money. He's not just putting up like a little hut for making sure that the servants can, can sit in the hut and then if some sort of animal comes in or whatever, he's got towers. He's got walls built. So you need to think that this is opulence. This is high and mighty of society of the kind of people that he's referring to. Um, with this master. The other thing you need to realize is that Jesus is referring to the nation of Israel and he's referring to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. So turn with me to Isaiah 5. That's page 569. There's like five or six different words that Jesus used in this story that are the same exact words from Isaiah 5 and then you're going to read it and you'll be like, oh, Jesus is basically saying what Isaiah is saying but in his own way. So, he's kind of riffing off of it and, um, you know, like a good preacher teacher, taking material of what somebody else said and saying, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to preach that. So, Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> this, is, this is a poem, a Hebrew poem. And he says, let, this is Isaiah, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, had a vineyard, on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it out of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes, or you could say sour, rotten grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
That's the last line, the last line there. The men of Judah are the pleasant planting. He looked for justice and bloodshed. These words, because it's Hebrew poetry, you don't quite catch it, but they're one letter apart. They sound the same. Sedekah and Sedah. And, and when you go to the next line for righteousness and outcry, it's the same thing. There's these beautiful Hebrew wordplay. And the basic point of the poem is what? God had a beautiful, well-manicured, money-invested vineyard. He did everything he could to help make it grow. But it was spoiled rotten. That's the passage of Scripture you should have in mind as you open up Matthew 21. Is that Jesus is kind of retelling that prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 5. So Jesus starts out by saying, look, there's this beautiful, lush vineyard with a fence around it and a wine press in it and a tower, and he leased it to tenants. Key word there, leased to tenants. And then he went away to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Because whose fruit is it? It's the master's. These guys were given a job. They were well supplied. They should be thankful. They should be grateful that they have a job of this rich, wealthy landowner and vineyard. But instead, there's a switch that happened in their minds. It's it's the wrong direction. They started to work and work, and just like that two, three-year-old kid in the nursery, after a while they realized, this is mine. And so you see, as the story goes, that God sent servants, and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Who are the servants in the story? We know that the the vineyard, God is the owner, the master. And we know that the tenants are the people that Jesus is talking about right now, the, the people of Israel. But the servants, who are the servants? The prophets, he's retelling the whole story of Israel. And the servants are prophets that God sent prophets to say, hey, let me help you with this. Let, let's, let's turn things around so your grapes aren't going to be rotten anymore. And what did they do to those prophets? What did they do to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah? When Isaiah said these words about a vineyard, what did they do to him? They beat them. They stoned them. They killed them. So again, verse 36 says, he sent more servants. At this point of the story, you know that it's not real. <laughs> like who would do that? Who would send more servants after they just killed some of your own servants? Like these guys are nobodies. They're tenants. They're just labor workers. And you just had some of your best servants go and, and get some fruit and get reported and they, they get treated this way? So the graciousness and the patience and the loving kindness of the master who is God is on display. Jesus is trying to show you unbelievable, radical, you will not believe it if you could see it kind of grace. It's that kind of idea that, is this really true? Because if it is, 
It's the kind of idea that can't be undone. This is what the kingdom is like. And so they sent, he sent servants again, and they did the same thing to this set of servants. And then finally he said, I'm going to send my son. Oh, they will respect my son. It says in verse 37, but when the tenants saw the son, they had been so fooled that this is going to be their vineyard. They think, oh, he's the heir. If we kill him, then this will be mine. And so they took him and they cast him out. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Now remember, at this point in the story, the, the Pharisees are still kind of wrapped up in the story. They're not getting it yet. So they just answer impulsively and they said, well, he would put these wretches to a miserable death and he would let the vineyard be served by other tenants and that they would be able to have the fruit from the season. Some have suggested, and I think there's probably good reason for it, that because of the leadership position that these men hold that are hearing the story from Jesus, that they're wealthy. And so there's a good chance that they themselves own a vineyard or have land and have people underneath of them that are servant-like. And so the fact that they're hearing this story, it, it's not surprising that immediately they just jump out and say, well, that's not right. These tenants should be destroyed, miserable wretches. And then this is when Jesus quotes to them and says, have you never read in the scriptures? And then he quotes Psalm 118, the same psalm, by the way, that was used earlier in the chapter, chapter 21. First story in chapter 21 is Jesus riding in on the donkey. And what is everybody saying? Say the word. Hosanna. Where's that come from? Psalm 118. So here we go. Psalm 118 begins our chapter. Psalm 118 ends our chapter. But here in this instance, the Hosannas are about the, the king, the Messiah that's going to come, and God restoring all things. But it says a little riddle in this psalm. It's, it's almost like a, a whole other story within the story. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So picture the story. It's, a, it's an illustration. It's a metaphor. Imagine there's a, a big rock quarry and a whole bunch of different rocks that have not been shaped yet. And you've got some builders and they're coming out and they're looking and inspecting the stones and like, okay, we're going to use that one. We're going to use that one. That one's got a crack on it. That one's not big enough. Not that one. That one. And that's the story of these builders that are looking at a bunch of different rocks that they're going to use for their building. And when they look through all of the different rocks, they pick the choice ones. And then they, they think, all right, which stone is going to be the cornerstone or capstone? And there's this big, long academic debate, is it cornerstone or capstone? Because cornerstone is the foundation stone, the bottom corner. And it'd be like 15 feet wide on the temple. Jesus is probably standing right next to one of these, by the way. Because there would have been a giant cornerstone. You can go to Israel today in Jerusalem, where the Dome of the Rock is, and at the bottom of it, there's still the foundation from the temple that Jesus is at right now. More than likely, he walked by it. He could have been pointing at it, but that cornerstone is this massive stone, and it's a foundation piece, and it's a piece that's also going to be a corner where you see it, so it's got to be a nice piece, you know? Maybe for the other pieces that you don't see as much, that one can be as uglier or whatever, so that's a cornerstone. But a capstone is the top stone that brings two walls together. 
And really, it's one of those, like, who cares at the end of the day? Like, is it a cornerstone or a capstone? Both of them illustrate the point. The building falls down if you've got a, a stone that's no good. You know, if it's got cracks and holes and it's, it's not going to hold two walls together or it's not going to hold the foundation. And, and here's, here's the story within the story. There's a stone that all the builders looked and passed over like, no, we don't want that one. But God, in Psalm 118, is saying, that's the stone that I've selected. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways and his thoughts so different and so far from us. Realize that the way that God works through Jesus is to pick the one that wasn't picked. And it's at this point, that he tells them that he's the chief cornerstone for the kingdom of God and that God's kingdom will be built on him and that if you reject this, then you'll be crushed. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these things and they realized, oh, oh wait, he's talking about us. Have you had that experience before? Where like you're in a conversation and then later on you realize, I didn't get that. I, I was getting made fun of there, and they were talking about me. Oh, now I feel even more like an idiot because I didn't get it. This is what's going on in this story. And they were going to arrest him, but yet their fear of the crowd meant they had to hold this off. Do you see how all of our section of Scripture is about authority? Whether it's the question from these Jewish leaders, by what authority do you do this? And then he reminds these leaders, do you remember John the Baptist? The father from heaven? The last official prophet that everybody's recognized? He's the one. Jesus will baptize him. Yeah, my authority's from heaven, from God. I am the son of God. I am the long-awaited Messiah. He is then the son in this story of the tenants that gets crushed and killed. When Jesus tells this story, he says, well, I'll send my son because they will respect my son. But the tenants saw the son and they said, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Do you realize that the struggle of these Pharisees and religious leaders is that they have confused that the kingdom is theirs. They should be tenants. They should be stewards of this responsibility. But instead, they have locked their fingers and wrapped their arms around the kingdom and said, mine. And by doing so, they kill Jesus in the process. Do you realize how destructive this kind of behavior is in your life? Do you realize that this struggle is not just what's going on in the scenes that lead up to Jesus' death? We're in the, the last week of Jesus' life, and each story and each moment, you're seeing why he eventually died. But here, in this particular section, we're seeing that it's a battle of authority. From the very beginning, we have the Bible started with a story about a God who lavishly 
gives us a vineyard or a garden with all kinds of choice fruits and all the raw materials that you and I would need to flourish. But he does not give us the vineyard or the garden to just say, do whatever you want with it. He's the master. We are vice regents or co-rulers, but underneath of his kingly rule. And so what do we do? The human problem, the fundamental human problem is we say mine. We want to be masters, not stewards. And so God removed us from this lavish garden the same way that he removes the garden from Israel. There's a repeated theme throughout the scriptures. And we know that after this horrible incident in Genesis chapter 3 that humanity has rejected and rebelled the master rule of God that he eventually chose a nation called Israel through Abraham and said that he wanted them to be a blessing to the nations, that they would be the fruitful vineyard garden that would have lavish fruit for all the nations to come and see. Their land would be a land flowing with milk and honey. The rest of the world could come and eat and rest and enjoy the presence of God and man. Because you see, the vision or the image of vineyard and garden throughout the Bible is not just a botanical one. It is a theological one. It is about the presence of God and man. And when they dwell in harmony together, oh, the joy and the delight and the generosity of God. You're being invited to a party. You're being invited to a feast. That's the opening pages of the Bible. But instead of enjoying the banquet he provides, you're like, no, I want to be the master of the feast. I want this to be mine. That's the problem of Genesis 3, of sin into the world. That's the problem of the nation of Israel repeatedly time and again. They produce rotten fruit, so God says your garden is going to be uprooted. You're going to lose your land. You will be in exile. Even when they return decades later, their fruit is still rotten, so Jesus has to confront them and say, bear fruit. Do the will of the Father. Your hearts are hard. And so it is that the only possible way to establish this garden-like feast, the place where God and man can dwell together, Jesus, God had to send his son. The master had to send his son. Not just servants, he already sent the servants, we already rejected them, but then he had to send the son, and he found himself in a garden. Think about the biblical story from the first garden of Adam and Eve to the second garden of the second Adam as he sweats drops of blood, as he prays to the Father and he says, not my will but yours be done, as he thinks about not the cup of joy and the overflowing wine of blessing but the cup of wrath deserved for all of those rotten fruits from all of humanity for all time. Think about Jesus wrestling with God, the Father, in that garden and saying yes to the cup. From one garden to another, finally to the ultimate rejection of hanging on a tree. 
from the tree of life for which they would have lived and, and had eternal life from day one in the first garden to the second garden when he's getting arrested from the garden of Gethsemane and he's expelled from the land and he's taken outside of the city gates and he hangs on a tree because that is going to be the new tree of life. Let, let the idea sink in that our God is a gracious, loving, generous master from page one of the Bible, and then he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and he sends servant after servant, and then he sends his son, and guess what his son does? He takes on the very price of your rebellion and your rejection of his authority. He submits himself to the will of the Father, even when it's the cup of the wrath of God. This is a generous, amazing, unbelievable God. Why would you not submit to him? If he's like this, this is what he's like. This is the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Why would you think that you have a better plan? Why would you think that your body is yours? Why would you think that your possessions are yours? Why would you think that anything that you have is yours? This is that idea that if you get it, that this God is good and he's giving and generously blessing. He's not trying to take, so don't go mine. Freely open your arms and your hands and say his and realize the satisfaction and the blessing that will come to you in your life when you realize that this plan is better. Sharing like he's sharing with us. We image God the best when we use the authority we've been giving and we share it and we bless others with it. That's what authority is about in a nutshell. So on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, think about the applications of how no one would ever abort a baby from a womb ever again if they knew his, not mine. The very fundamental ideology that murders children day after day after day and is killing off a whole generation of people is because of the mine attitude. And that's just one application. Can you see how this application ripples to every aspect of your life? Is your house yours, or is it open to all, including prostitutes and tax collectors? Is your money yours, or is it God's from first penny to last? Is your time yours? When you schedule your time, is it yours, or is it his? Is your gender yours, or is it his? This is not our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. What a precious, glorious, excellent truth that does not steal from us, but gives us life, because that was the intention from the very original first garden. So do you look at God right now and do you think of him as the cranky old man upstairs that's just trying to rob you from all of your joy or the generous, patient, gracious God 
that not only is patient with all of your rebellion and rejection, but overcomes it through the Holy Spirit by sending his son, having him die in your place, and then come chase after you with his Holy Spirit. Do you see him as one that wants to provide a banquet or a garden full of lavish fruits? Friends, this idea, that one idea, it'll change absolutely everything about your life. And you can't undo it. That's what we Christians call conversion. You get converted. Everything will be different. Nothing will be the same. Are you a Christian? Has, has that idea sunk in? If you're here today, you're a guest, visitor, and you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, the last several minutes of our time together has hopefully been trying to help you understand what that's all about. This is what he's like. Submit and obey for your joy, for his glory, and for the world's good. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for being a generous, loving master. That your authority was not something that you wanted to abuse and exploit, but rather your authority was to bless. So we thank you, God, that here in this room, no matter who we are, whether we're a prostitute or a tax collector, whether we've had an abortion or just even considered it, whether we have murdered in our heart or actually committed murder, Father, we are thankful that your kingdom is for all. It is for anyone in this room that would get this idea stuck down in their heart that it is yours and that our life is not our own and that you want to bless and not steal, give, not take away. So we thank you, Father, for this amazing truth through the servant Jesus. And I pray that today, each and every one of us will not reject him. That we would respect him. And that we would authorize him as the Lord of our life. And let every little detail of every moment of our day be governed by his kingly rule. Would your spirit guide us toward that end? To the glory of your great and awesome name. May the nations see our good deeds and glorify you, the Father in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.